Join us at The Hedge for a conversation about engineering, technology, and business. In this episode, Russ White, Tom Ammon, and Andrew Odwisko dig into the value of cybersecurity. Well, hello, Andrew. Um, I guess it's mid-morning for you or something like that because you're in Minneapolis, correct? Eight o'clock in the morning. So Okay, oh, eight o'clock. All right, so still early morning, and it's early morning for you, Tom. Hello, Tom. Good morning. Uh, glad you're back here with us today. And uh, so, Andrew, you wrote this really interesting, interesting paper to me because I'm always making the argument that security is a trade-off, and I don't think people believe me. <laughs> They want security to be absolute. And so talk us through a little bit about your paper and what you wrote and what's going on there. Well, the main point of it is that everybody is talking uh, kind of about security in these apocalyptic terms. You know, uh, we're all going to be killed by the cyber Pearl Harbor and so on. On the other hand, people have been talking this way for decades. And I must say, I'm guilty. Uh, I've been guilty of that myself in the past. I came from a very technical background. Uh, my broader interests in the kind of societal impact or just you know, psychological uh, factors and so on is relatively new. I started out as uh, this technical nerd who just you know went into science and technology and mathematics to get away from people and all these other things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like like the rest of us, <laughs> <laughs> many of us. <laughs> uh, but then I kept bumping into all these uh, st- st- seemingly strange situations where what seemed to be brilliant technical uh, solutions were not being adopted. And in particular, I found this great disjunction. Namely, people were talking how important uh, security was, and not just cybersecurity, general security, but they were actually not doing very much about it. And moreover, not that much was happening. Or in some sense, yes, some things are happening, uh, you know, uh, but somehow society seems to be willing to accept certain risks and certain uh, serious damages. Um, in the United States alone, we tolerate about 40,000 deaths due to uh, automobile use. Uh, worldwide, it's well over a million per year. And, you know, it's, it's a huge slaughter. I mean, we've lost more people, you know, to cars than we've lost to all the wars in American history by a big, big margin. Yet somehow we tolerate it, that case. Uh, so <laughs> obviously something else was going on. And uh, kind of, I started kind of looking more deeply into it. And of course, that, uh, that was only one, one factor. I mean, I was also looking at various other technical issues not related to uh, security. Uh, I was, uh, well, doing research, but also research management at Bell Labs, interacting with a business unit and so on. And very often, you know, I would kind of talk to these people and they would be coming to us for technical solutions, but when you kind of delve deeply into it, that, that wasn't the real issue that was involved in there. 
So generally speaking, I know I started developing, and it was now several decades ago, I think this goes back about uh, just about two decades, I started kind of waking up and uh, uh, taking a broader look, realized that, well, uh, no, cybersecurity is one aspect of security, and security is, as you just mentioned, a matter of trade-offs. Uh, people are making these trade-offs all the time. Uh, you know, when you drive up to, I think you mentioned Rhode Island, you're going up there, uh, you're not going to be driving up in a tank, uh, you probably will know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a friend, uh, a colleague of mine at Bell Labs, uh, he would drive his car with, an automobile, with a motorcycle helmet, okay, <laughs> inside the car. Risk aversion. <laughs> risk aversion and so on. Well, I mean, it, it provides some extra protection, but how many people? I mean, he's the only person <laughs> I know or have seen doing this and so on. Uh, how many people do that? Yeah. We're accepting certain levels of risk all the time. And basically, uh, kind of, uh, that's what we observe, uh, you know, in the cyberspace. And again, the... Uh, early warnings uh, might have made more sense, so I kind of don't feel quite as uh, maybe guilty of participating in the scaremongering <laughs> in my earlier days, in that sense that cyberspace, networking, internet, and everything else was new, and you could, have, you know, could plausibly make the case that yes, now the dangers are much greater because the bad guys could now paralyze the whole world, you know, the, you know with a touch of a finger on the keyboard and so on. But yeah. now, with several decades of experience, that simply is not happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, right. We we have these this terror plot idea, as Bruce Schneier talks about, right? This this idea that every every terrorist or every um, every hacker is like this movie plot. <laughs> They're all perfect, and they all like they can do anything they want to do inside your system, and we we overestimate the threat a lot of times. Um, yeah. And the other thing is, too, is I think is interesting is that this, this example of wearing the motorcycle ha helmet in a car while driving, that's actually a trade-off. I mean, we think I'm giving my head more protection, but we're also in doing that, we could be reducing our field of vision yep. and making it more difficult to drive safely. That's so right. th it, it's not like it's a one-off. It's not like it's a one-way street here. It's not like you can just... Absolutely. I mean, you see it, I guess, Three Mile Island was a very good example. You know, uh, from what I read, the various operators had so many different warnings going on, uh, so many red lights flashing and so on, uh, they couldn't really figure out what was happening. Uh, so, yes, I mean, you really need to have uh, kind of good field of vision in some sense and to be able to make sense and to, uh, to be able to decide on what action to take quickly. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, I remember this car I was driving once in snow, and it had one of those lane change sensor things or whatever on it. And every time I would try to cross the lane where there was a bump of snow because it hadn't been beaten down by cars or whatever, it would actually give me heptic feedback in the steering wheel right. and in my seat. And it was driving me nuts. I had to pull over and figure out how to stop it yep. <laughs> because it was so distracting. I was trying to change lanes and the car is buzzing and beeping and doing it. I'm like, stop. <laughs> well, you look at this Boeing 737 MAX issue, for example, with this automated system kicking in and the pilots not being trained, not knowing what to expect. And well, you know. 
tragic, totally tragic accidents. Right, right. So, right. So, being overly cautious, or not being overly cautious, but having two automated systems, bring can bring a fragility to the situation. Absolutely. Which which can actually cause people to die. Right. So that's so that's the other side of it, and we don't think about that. So, so what's the name of this paper? Because it was a really cool name. Uh, Cybersecurity is not very important. <laughs> Provocative. I like it. Provocative. Right. Yeah. Yes, so, very, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying not very important. <laughs> very important. Obviously, and I, in the paper, I stress that yes, it's becoming more important. And uh, I guess there's, there's evidence that rel, uh, that the fraction of security resources devoted to cybersecurity is increasing, which is again quite appropriate in my view because we're more reliant on all these information technology systems and so therefore we need to pay more attention to devoting them. On the other hand, we can start cutting back on some of the kind of physical security measures uh, to some extent because we can replace them with some of these IT systems. Um, just uh, again, if you, if you simply look at total security, uh, United States, we have roughly a million uh, uniformed police officers. I'm not talking about the army here, Pentagon and so on, just uh, ordinary police officers, about a million of them. And we have well over a million private security guards. And most of them are devoted to kind of physical security, looking at people's badges and so on. Well, many of them can be replaced with cameras, biometric systems and such like. And those resources can now be shifted towards uh, kind of uh, looking at cybersecurity. And I think that's entirely proper. I'm not saying that we can just, you know, forget about cybersecurity and let you know, the hackers do what they want. Obviously, that's not going to work. Just like we're not, we're not, we cannot afford to fire all the police officers. <laughs> oh, people are people are inherently good, and you know, they, they, you know, once we eliminate government, and so on. Yes. So yeah, moral people don't need not need police officers, but sure. there, there there are no moral people, so <laughs> not perfectly. So <laughs> I guess I guess we're always stuck with them, regardless of. Um, how much money it is or whatever, right. So, yeah, so that's an interesting thesis. Um, so how do you see the market developing now in terms of information and, you know, stuff like that as far as security goes? Do you see that uh, this is being taken seriously or do you think people are still um, – where, where do you see this going? Uh, sorry, but in what sense uh, – what do you mean by market or what do you mean by uh, – well, well. Overall, do you think people are spending more money on cybersecurity? You said you seem you seem to see some movement oh, yeah. in that direction. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, among other things, uh, I kind of I, I teach in a master's degree program on security management. We have here at the university, and uh, the folks who graduate are getting jobs. Uh, you look. Uh, oh, that's a good thing. <laughs> Uh, we also you know, talk, talk to companies around here. Uh, they've certainly increased their uh, kind of resources. The Target, which is locally headquartered with corporation, they had this notorious security breach a few years ago. And I think one of their uh, kind of official uh, statements not so long ago said they basically doubled the size of their cybersecurity effort. 
they now watch the databases much more carefully, make sure that you know software gets patched and everything else. So yes, definitely. And that, go ahead, Tom. Sorry. Is, so, do you think there's is there any sort of a model that could be figured out where you could say that you know at some point the there's there's the law of diminishing returns where we could identify that you're getting to the point now where adding additional resources for security is really not going to make you any more safe. And in light of some stuff in your paper, it actually could, could, could harm you. Is that, has there been any effort to model that relationship? Oh, there's a lot of effort. So there is, uh, I mean, there's a whole area of uh, inf uh, economics of information security. So there's an annual uh, series of uh, workshops uh, I've been involved in them from the beginning, that's held. Uh, there is also a lot of papers in other conferences on this topic where people either collect data and kind of model the effects of particular measures. So there are some very interesting studies, what happens when, uh, sort of, uh, uh, what happens with breach disclosure laws. Uh, what effect does that have in, in security and such like? Uh, but I mean, it's still early. Remember, kind of uh, the whole field is uh, quite young and it's rapidly evolving. So I, I don't think we have anything really definitive. But then no. we don't. We have some such measures for ordinary physical security, uh, but again, it's not really definitive. Right. And do you think it could be definitive or do you think this is just an area where the threat models and the things just change so rapidly that you really can't necessarily come down and say, at this point, the trade-off is clear, you should not protect this or you should protect that? Uh, I don't think you'll ever have anything that's really very clean, definitive, but I think you're going to have better sense uh, of kind of general trade-off, general guidelines and such like uh, comparisons, just like we have with ordinary kind of uh, physical security case. But it's hard. The problem is, again, some interesting modeling uh, has been done using the epidemic models and other kinds of things, say, taken for biology and other problems. The difficulty is that uh, this applies to certain amount in cyberspace to, say, attacks by the script kiddies and so on. But the problem is you're also dealing with lots of clever uh, adversaries. And uh, those adversaries, they can do their modeling, they can uh, read the papers and figure out what it is that you're doing. Uh, so, uh, you know, kind of trying to model a 9-11 or an attack by a state actor, I think that's uh, kind of fool's gold. Yeah, you just have to be prepared to react to it. Sorry. Is there any, um, what, talking about physical security made me think of, uh, you know, the broken glass theory, this idea in law enforcement that if you, if you enforce the, um, the, the smaller crimes, the misdemeanor crimes, you actually end up with a net positive effect. Is there any analog to that in information security, do you think? Uh, my guess is yes, but I don't think it's been kind of documented. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, remember, a lot of the, what we see on the internet uh, is really a kind of script kiddies, uh, people who do things as, for, as a not necessarily because they are trying to make money, but as a lark and so on, uh, mm -hmm. and such like. And if you can slap them down and so on early on, uh, that might help control it. Uh, and I, I think you're quite right. Uh, your kind of uh, insight. Uh, I have not seen kind of a, a quantitative studies of it. 
Oh, interesting. So thinking back to physical security too, a lot of physical security we seem to think or we think a lot about physical security in terms of perimeter, right? Like if you look at a military base, you try to keep people from getting on. But then I remember when I was in the military, there was this one time when there were these protesters outside and the guards on the base, the, the, the SPs just basically let them in. Yes. And everybody was like, well, what are you doing there? And the counter was, well, it's not so much that we don't want them to get on. We just don't want them to get back off. <laughs> you know, like once they're here, we have them trapped. That's right. <laughs> so, so, well, so it's, if it's a known group, a pacifist group and so on, then you sort of know they are pretty much innocuous. I mean, they are not going to explode a bomb and bring a bomb with them and blow it up. <laughs> And so, so yes, I, I think there is some to it. Yes, uh, and I mean that's one of the issues I think with some of the uh, kind of hackers, uh, people who you know kind of uh, were caught uh, penetrating defenses, and they're doing it not again necessarily to extort money or do damage, but as a lark, as a challenge. Okay, oh yes, I can penetrate this top secret system or do other things. So I can call up, uh, you know, the president or some, you know, minister and uh, impersonate uh, you know, some oligarch or, or, or uh, Arab sheik and uh, <laughs> see what kind of reaction I get from them. Uh, so yes, I mean, there's a whole variety of, uh, of different types of, uh, what called threats or... It's, it's always easy to tell these people because they use red computers and they wear trench coats <laughs> and they always wear hats and sunglasses right. while they're on their red computers, right? The old spy versus spy. So it's always funny to me how we always, you know, depict hackers this way. And really, they're, they're normally just average people probably who are sitting in their living room or sitting in their basement and right. you know, doing well, whatever they're doing. Also, or very often also they are uh, the somewhat social uh, kind, of, uh, kind of guys who are driven into technology because, again, that gets them away. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if you don't want to be a black cat, become social, is that your... <laughs> Well, I mean, you look at what many of the national security intelligence other agencies, they often try to recruit such people. I mean, they are often very clever, very you know, eager to work very hard. And if you can direct their energies and their intelligence uh, in, in desired uh, directions, that's, that's great. Also. Andrew, what about, what about um, I guess, the macroeconomic view? What, what I was just thinking of was, uh, it's it's uh, the cost is now trivial to um, you know to perpetrate a DDoS attack, for example, against somebody. Uh, it used to be hard to do that. Now it's anybody can do it. Teenagers can do it. Yeah. So how how does that play into the whole thing, like the macroeconomic cha the changes in the macroeconomic environment? Uh, well, okay, so that's one of the things that really takes a long time to get into it. To some extent, what's happening, and again, um, this, uh, this is partially covered in my essay, there are various incentives in the system which actually uh, lead to perpetuation of the current, uh, current setup. Namely, things like DDoS attacks lead people to uh, put their uh, kind of cyber infrastructure uh, in the cloud. And that leads to kind of domination by the big cloud providers. 
So when you think about, say, Amazon or Microsoft and so on, uh, one of the uh, their selling points is, well, you know, you put your website uh, in our cloud, you'll be safe from DDoS attacks. Or you go to Akamai and, and do this and so on. Uh, now, what that does, of course, it... Uh, kind of gives greater economy, effectively greater economies of scale. The big guys now have a big advantage, and so they can exploit it. And what we see on the internet, and that's a bigger microeconomic picture, what we see on the internet is the original promise of it is decentralized systems where everybody is equal and communicate with everybody and do what they want is disappearing. Now you basically end up having to choose among you know, three or four major platform providers in order to be safe and to provide reliable service and such like. So yes, there are lots of things going on at the same point. Uh, something else which I cited in my essay is the issue of privacy. Uh, companies uh, kind of, uh, of course, they try to erode privacy, to monitor us uh, intrusively you know, for their own uh, economic reasons. Uh, but they can also say, well, we need to do this for your security. Okay, you know, to be sure that your credit card, your <laughs> stolen credit card number is not misused, we've got to have a, a good profile of how you use it properly and so on. Uh, so yes, lots of things are going on in here. Yeah, so, yeah. And so, and there are macroeconomic implications, definitely. Yeah. So, 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 too, too bad about your privacy. We're doing it for your own good. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We've got to now have a good profile of how you type, you know, the, the keyboards that can detect if it's you or somebody who kind of yeah. stole your identity. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess one thing that, that kind of concerns me about that or that I think about when I think about that is that I'm not sure that centralization is really a good security posture. It, t- it tends to make us focus more on, again, that edge security, building the castle walls, rather than thinking through what security really means and how to make it how to be effective as security, right? Um, it's almost like a default. Yeah, we'll just build a castle. We'll get everybody inside the castle and then the castle becomes the only place anybody does business. Well, is that really healthy from a security perspective, much less an economic one? I, I'm not sure that I see it that way. Well, if it's the only place that people are doing business, then that's where the focus is going to shift for people trying to exploit things. They'll just move inside the castle wall. That's right, absolutely. No, no so it's a change and uh, there are trade-offs and there are people who uh, kind of try to affect the trade-offs and shift them in their direction. And for a big platform providers right now, uh, I mean, it's one of the selling points to, to exploit the pre- present state of insecurity. And, but some of it, again, I mean, technology provides you with a frontier. You know, kind of society can choose where they operate on the technological frontier, but the technology is there. You know, you're not going to, uh, not to travel faster than speed of light, okay, as far as we know. <laughs> well, well, nobody we know has done it. <laughs> Precisely. All, all the ones who claim to have done it are kind of all, all, all the deep end. Either. <laughs> And and the problem is that there are these very strong centralizing tendencies. One of them is that uh, which doesn't seem to be a way to have thousands of different operating systems. Okay, we can, seems like the world can only support a couple of them. 
And once you have an operating system, it seems that we don't know how to build secure ones, which means they've got to be updated and then we better have automated updates. So in effect, you end up you know whether you end up with centralization at some level and one of those levels is at the operating system you have to rely on one of these three or four uh, providers and and trust them to keep updating the operating system because you cannot rely on the several billion people to each you know inspect you know to check uh, the update make sure it's secure and so on they've got to implicitly trust uh, the producer of that operating system. So yes, I mean, it's an uncomfortable situation. Uh, I, I agree it would be ni much nicer if we could conceive some kind of a de decentralized world. Doesn't seem to be really feasible. Interesting. So that's interesting because as well, I think that um, I, have a, I have a belief about technological, de not determinism, but uh, momentum that technology also drives the culture to some degree. The culture drives the technology, but, culture, but technology drives the culture as well. So maybe the centralization is actually driving a bit of a culture change in information technology that may not be the healthiest, healthiest thing in the world from a security perspective of, I'm just going to throw this stuff in the cloud and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let somebody else, I'm going to outsource my risk. I'm not convinced you can outsource your risk in that way myself. That's, you know, you can play at it, but I'm not sure it actually works. Yep. Agreed. That's a problem. I mean, I mean, I kind of, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that the future is all rosy and so on. That yeah. No reasons for concern. So, yeah. yeah. So, so is there anything in your classes you teach that help people to see how to think about security systemically or <clears throat> not just this build the castle wall through everything inside the castle perspective? I mean, is there any, um, do you see movement in that direction? Do you try to teach that? Is that something that you have specific ways of teaching? How does that work out? Uh, well, no, no. I'm, so I'm not teaching kind of overall general philosophy. Based <laughs> what I to, well, first of all, uh, I kind of try to break through this mindset that we've got to have absolute security. And then I try to teach them about some of the trade-offs that you know, show them how we made trade-offs in other areas, to what extent these carry over to kind of cyberspace. And then also uh, to teach them about various other factors, the uh, kind of difficulty of predicting the future, difficulty of foreseeing uh, kind of the threats that arise and uh, kind of uh, general kind of job there that these students are likely to face. Okay, interesting. So what about complexity and security? Now, would you say that complexity is the enemy of security? Is that a blanket statement, or would you say that there's a much deeper trade-off than that, or a much deeper interaction than that? Well, there's a deeper interaction. So part of, uh, you know, part of it, uh, of the complexity, is it also helps provide security, provide this messy situation uh, that is uh, hard for the bad guys who can penetrate the systems to, to, to abuse the system without detection. Uh, I know I, I talked about the advantages of spaghetti code. Um, of course, this is kind of denigrated, uh, deprecated by almost everybody. But on the other hand, it means that, you know, when the bad guys do things, they tend to leave traces behind. So kind of uh, um, you can very often just go back and figure out what happened. Yeah. 
That was actually a really fascinating piece of your paper was about the value of spaghetti code. And we hear all the time in the networking industry and in security that obscurity is not security. That's and right. yet the spaghetti code almost argument almost makes an argument against that. So to me, it's again, it's a trade-off. So what do you think about that? What is there? Is there value in obscurity? Is there, um, you know, what is that value? How do you approach that value or... There is value. Again, it's not because it's ideal, but in practice there is value. And again, this is something I uh, used to preach uh, with great uh, you know, fervor that uh, you shouldn't rely on security through obscurity. On the other hand, we now have a lot of examples where uh, kind of uh, various faults uh, are, are known to have been in the systems for a long, long time, yet they were not detected, at least not detected that we know of. Maybe, you know, some people may have detected them and used them surreptitiously. And uh, there are lots of uh, insecure, you know, crypto algorithms and crypto systems, insecure protocols out there. It just they haven't really been explored. Uh, there are again part of we essentially have an eco, you know ecosystem, cybercrime ecosystem. There are only so many really clever bad guys out there, and they are not able to find all of the all of the bugs and exploit all of them. And they are also not able to find all of the insecure systems that have been deployed, uh, kind of. Um, that with more effort could be cracked. So again, it's not an it's not, not an ideal world. I kind of ideally you should have you know, secure algorithms and secure protocols and so on. But in practice, we do. And what we observed is that in many cases, those things don't get exploited for a long, long time. So in essence, by default and so on, we end up relying on security through obscurity to a substantial extent. Right. Well, I think the other piece of that for me anyway is that information is valuable to the attacker, right? I mean, if you go back to, to, to real physical wars like World War II and you think about some of the information, disinformation, there was this great book called um, uh, Project Minchmeat, I think was the name of the, the project that they put on where they actually took somebody who had died of natural causes, put them in a submarine, carried them across the ocean and planted them with false information and then release their body onto a beach yes. for the opposing side to, to discover, so to speak, and to assume that this person was somebody of value that had just washed up on the beach from an exploded submarine or something. And I think that kind of disinformation, we often don't understand the value of information and security when we say security by obscurity is no good or whatever, because really all obscurity is is just blocking information. It's just, yep. you know. Yes. So, uh, growth of disinformation, I think that's going to be very noticeable, and that's going to be a defensive measure, um, sort of deep fakes. So, again, there's lots of alarm about deep fakes. Uh, my argument uh, actually is that they are going to be a crucial feature, letting us preserve certain types of, like, of privacy or kind of uh, information opacity. 
something. So, uh, you know, because um, a video surfaces of you, you know, with some Nazi swastika and so on. Uh, well, okay, you can say, oh, it's a, you know, this, again, whether it's true or not, you know, m m maybe you were attracted to the kind of uh, new Nazis for a, you know in your youth, but you're ashamed of it and so on. And uh, but you can now say, no, no, this is a deep fake. Okay, there's another, <laughs> another video almost identical where I am, you know, where I am showing Star of David or I'm the Muslim. Christian crescent or, or something else like that and now uh, kind of uh, and it's an issue of information opacity you have different different visions uh, or different views that are presented and uh, again uh, we'll, be, we'll be going back to the old world physical world where there again there was ambiguity and then yes you might have very kind of uh, complicated processes, almost semi-judicial, semi-judicial processes, trying to find what the truth was, experts coming in, examining that video, saying, oh, no, 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 here are the snippets that are incorporated from somebody else, here's a timestamp, <laughs> it's secure, other witnesses coming with uh, other data, and then again, it will be, you know, requirements for long uh, battles of experts to establish the truth and I think this is going to be really critical uh, for human society uh, cool well all right well um, Andrew thanks for coming on and discussing this really awesome paper I'm gonna put a link to the paper in the show notes because I think it's really fascinating reading and I think everybody who listens to the head should read it in fact everybody who's in network security should read it because right. it's because it's really awesome is there any place people can find your other work Andrew other than just on my homepage uh, so all of my recent uh, papers and other things also links to some I like, have some stuff on YouTube and so on it's all available there Okay, great. I'll put a, put a link to that in the show notes as well so people can find that and um, look at your other work. And Tom, normal places to find you, just LinkedIn, right? LinkedIn and Twitter at Tom Ammon. Twitter, okay. And I'm Russ White. You can always find me at rule11.tech. And thanks for listening to us here on The Hedge. Thank you for joining us. You can find The Hedge at rule11.tech.